Welcome to the Hunter Farmer Artisan Podcast. My name is Ryan Garrett. I will be your host. I'm excited for our guest today. Today, I have the freelance writer Jordan Rash on the show. Hey, thanks for coming on. Good. Thanks for having me, Garrett. Ryan Garrett. You know what? <laughs> Finally, a guest messes up my name. Last two episodes yeah. that I have recorded, I have either screwed up their name or title or something. It has been my bad streak. So I'm 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 happy that you helped me break it. Yeah, no, you're welcome. It's been a long <laughs> day, man. As we were just talking about work has been busy. So this ought to be a fun episode to get into yeah. these complex topics. But should I just keep running with Garrett or should I go back to Ryan? You know, I'm so used to it. We can go with Ryan, though. Um, right, we'll go with Ryan. Apologies. No problem. So the reason I had I brought you on the show is I ran across your op-ed in the May issue of the News Tribune, and mm -hmm. the title of it was I'm a left-leaning outdoorsman. Here is why veganism isn't cruelty-free. And yeah. if you get a chance, go read that article. It's echoed so many sentiments that I have just been screaming into the void for so many years but i wanted to have you on because i think that you lend an insight into hunting that we really need and, and how we could combat some of the issues that we're currently dealing with with the commission so tell me a little bit about yeah. that article and what motivated you to write it yeah no, that's great that's a great place to start so first I didn't write the title. If you read the article, uh, you'll see that it says very little about vegans. It's really more of an example. And it's actually how the, the this is the genesis of the actual article writing. Um, I have a friend from high school, known her for, I mean, since we were little kids. And she wrote that she lives uh, a life cruelty-free because she's vegan. I'm not going to give any more detail than that, but that's what she said, because uh, I don't want to you know, burn her or anything like that. But it struck me as interesting. And, you know, obviously being an outdoorsman, I, I hunt and fish and, uh, you know, gather and garden, all these kinds of things. And I was like, well, I, and I've worked on farms and I know that you can't raise food of any kind, animal or vegetable, fruit, or whatever, without harming an animal. And I also know I can't live my life just as a human without harming an animal in some way. Like our lives impact the environment on a daily basis, no matter what you do, our mere existence impacts yeah, it. So that's what kind of got my unknowable ways. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, so if you want to be arm's length from your food and you don't see that, well, that's fine. But you have to still understand that you have an impact. And that's kind of the approach I was trying to make. But in it also does does come back to you know some of the sentiments that you see with like our Fish and Wildlife Commission, where they talk about you know hunting of a bear and, and killing of a bear in the spring is cruel, and they come up with these vague reasons that aren't really true, like you know they're sluggish in the spring. Okay, <laughs> says who? Like, I don't know where that's based in science, but um, you know that's why I'll say wrote verbatim in that op-ed that. Uh, harvesting of an animal is cruel. You're killing something. I mean, what's more cruel than that? It is that. But at the same time, conservation and being an outdoorsman is about being part of that environment. And, um, you know, we, I think we as outdoorsmen see that and are more in tune to that than someone who, while maybe being a vegan, 
believes that they can live separate from that. And they are not harming the environment in some way. Whereas I think we tend to own that. We're aware of the impacts that we have when we pull that trigger or when we, um, you know, set that hook, you know, whatever it may be, we're, we're harvesting something and we're a part of that as a result. Yeah. And, and again, I was, I was just so thankful for that article because I've been saying that so many years, my, my version of that is pest abatement. You know, I also have a mm-hmm. farm yep. and I guarantee that I've killed more animals this season than most hunters will harvest in their lifetime yep. for hunting. And that's all in a pursuit of vegetables. I mean, just yeah. gof- gophers alone. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's a necessary part of growing food. And anybody who says, oh, well, just grow enough for any, but everybody doesn't understand how those population dynamics work. You you might be able to do that. Economics. Year, but then <laughs> the population will explode and consume the excess that you're trying to grow in order to feed yourself and the community. Just like how populations of coyotes boom and bust with rat with hares, right? Yeah. Same concept. They're going to follow the food. If there's food, they're going to their population's going to grow. If food system crashes, they're going to crash. Their population will crash. Same yeah. concept. Absolutely. And I just think that not only was that perspective very interesting, but the secondary piece of that. And as I got to talking to you, I realized you had a lot more insight than I initially thought you were going to have because I just had come across this article and just thought you were some guy. And it turns out you're some guy who has worked in the Oregon State Senate, the Washington State House for quite some time. And so you actually do have a pretty solid knowledge of how policy gets made and how bipartisan decisions get made. And I know that in the hunting community, there's a a very vocal segment of people who basically say the only way to solve this is to vote a particular way. And I would like to figure out ways to make sure that however that vote goes, that whoever fills the seats of government knows that our concerns are valid and they are important. So I'd love to talk to you about how we make that happen how much time we got i mean it's a great question you know my first legislative session was in 2003 i was 19 and so i i was definitely learning a lot right out of the gate about what i believed in um and about how legislative systems worked and i actually started in the oregon state house as an intern and i worked for a couple republicans linda flores and tootie smith uh, who are uh, in the House Republican Caucus. And then two years later, I went to work for Jeannie Burdick, who is in the Oregon State Senate. She's a Democrat. And then I came up to, to Washington and I worked for a couple different legislators in the House Democratic Caucus. And I worked for the Commissioner of Public Lands on Legislative Affairs. And so often, I would say in particular, when I was working for the Commissioner of Public Lands, what I felt like we were doing was wasn't having anything to do with party politics. We had a legislative agenda and we were just trying to get to 50% plus one. That's what we needed to pass legislation. It was irrelevant where we got those those votes. We needed to get something passed, you know, whether it was a budget proviso or a piece of legislation. We, we just viewed the 98 members of the House and the 49 senators, you know, as 
that's who they were, just one of many, and needed to engage them and one vote at a time until you get one vote at a time. Yeah, yeah. So when I think about hunters, you know, and I'll say I'll speak for myself. I feel like I've taken my access for granted. You know, so much of my interests in hunting and in conservation are in protecting lands from development, keeping things from being converted, uh, primarily converted from, you know, some sort of natural resource or open space use to, you know, subdivision, warehouse, things of that nature that reduce the the, the benefits to fish and wildlife, that reduce the benefits to our ecosystems, uh, and of course, take away our hunting and fishing opportunities. So as hunters, and like for myself, I just assume these are things that will always be there. And then when I see commentary, you know, as we talked about with the Fish and Wildlife Commission about their views on certain hunting activities, it's hard not to think that there's some broader effort to take away more hunting and fishing opportunities. It's really difficult not to. But I also don't think that it's a foregone conclusion. And I certainly don't think that hunters are incapable of engaging with the, the commission and with our elected officials as well and articulate a position around our interests that has anything really to do with party politics and say, this is what we want to do is to have the right to come out and hunt and fish and, of course, protect natural resource, protect the fish and wildlife populations. You know, I'm, I'm a big hunter, um, and I, I remember talking to a, a fish and wildlife commissioner about, oh, a harlequin duck. And we closed that down this last hunting season. And as far as I know, it's still closed uh, this season. I actually haven't looked yet. But we closed it down because their population is super low. They have high site fidelity, so people know where they're at. You can go out there and hunt them. They're going to keep coming back to that same spot at those tide conditions day after day. So if they're there, you go out to that spot, you'll find them. And thus you can harvest one. And so their populations got really low in Washington, so we closed it. I support that. Like, that makes total sense. And so. I don't think hunters are saying, using spring bear as the example, or just black bear in general, that we want to go out and shoot every single black bear. But there's certainly enough black bears to hunt in the spring. And it's been a season that we've been doing for 40 years, but actually has a benefit for um, uh, managing uh, the bear population, in particular in the spring when they're damaging trees, when they're girdling them and, and, and oftentimes killing those trees. It's just you know another opportunity for folks to get out. It provides revenue to the agency, provides revenue for fish and wildlife management. But the commission felt it was cruel to hunt them in the spring. Well, I'm, again, that's in part why I wrote that particular op-ed. The taking of any animal's life is cruel. It just is. Yeah, it's like nature. We are a part of the ecosystem, and that ecosystem is both beautiful and brutal. Yes. At the end of every single day. And the sooner that we as a society make efforts to understand that we are a part of that ecosystem and that there is not a way to extricate ourselves from that. Like we yeah. don't get to live in a bubble and unless we somehow launch ourselves into space and go yeah. somewhere else. And then we'll just be a whole new ecosystem. <laughs> Yeah, you and Elon can go to Mars, and then you won't be impacting fish and wildlife habitat that we know of. That we know of, just just new ones. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's 
it's a a mental barrier that I've seen that has totally. become more and more of a problem as our society has become more and more urban. And I'm not saying that Definitely. living in the city is wrong and that you're an idiot if yeah. you do. I don't personally understand it, but I can actually understand the economics of why a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, but what I want to talk about is we do have a balancing act to be made there. And it's funny that you bring up the Harlequin duck because I've been having the same example of something go through my head recently of we're constantly hammering on the, the commission specifically. And some people also focus that ire on the WDFW, which, you know, I think they're by and large pretty supportive of what we're trying to do and our, our suit. But I had this example go through my mind of changing the season opening date on grouse. Mm -hmm. And I was annoyed that first season because they all kind yeah. of dispersed. But the reason they did it was so that they could disperse and that we'd have higher populations. And this year I'm seeing more grouse than I've okay. ever seen, which okay. is cool. You know, that in my, my opinion is a conservation win. And yeah. I support those kinds of changes. But I also would like to make sure that we do those types of changes in a way that also respects the importance of the traditions, the importance of the, the conservation values that hunting instills, you know, like my example, and then I'll get to my question sure. is turkey hunting. April 15th mm -hmm. is what I tell people is my holy day on the calendar. Hmm. I will be turkey hunting. April 15th <laughs> every year as long as I live but we have found out over time and looking at at turkey biology that hitting big toms early in their cycle can have a, a really outsized impact on holt success just because of the way mm. their whole breeding habits are kind of cool oh. okay so this year, when I hunted April 15th, I actually specifically targeted a Jake so I wouldn't screw up the system because their breeding okay. activity was pretty late. Mm -hmm. um, but the, and I had a really good shot on a Tom before that Jake too. It was really torturous. <laughs> point being that if we ever came to the point where it's like turkey populations are coming down, maybe we need to not be hitting them so early I would love that, I would love but that. I would also yeah. hope that as we made that change, we would utilize that as an opportunity to say, yeah, but let's also keep a limited draw, a very limited draw for people who would hunt on April 15th. Basically, you get an early season tag that is for a number of people, and then you can raise more net revenue by taking out less birds. I would be all yeah. for that because that would be one of those types of wins where it's like okay we're trying to protect the biology we're trying to conserve the resource but we're also trying to respect the the traditions while figuring out ways to generate more revenue and i think that's yeah, sort of multi-pronged approach is what we need how do we do something similar for bear <laughs> yeah i'm probably not a great 
person to answer the question about bear. Uh, the funny story, my wife will probably listen to this podcast, so I'll just say it. Um, she has forbidden me to bear hunt. She <laughs> loves bears. She's happy for me to hunt anything else. And I mean, she's like, whatever you else you want to hunt, that's fine. Just don't, not a bear. She loves bears. Bears are different, and I acknowledge it. Yeah, and I found a loophole because this demonstrates my background in politics and legislation. I will not hunt a bear. But last year, almost to the date, I went hunting with a friend who was hunting bear. I wasn't carrying a firearm. But if he got one, I was going to help pack it out. Nice. And if he got one, he was going to give me a little bit of meat. I'm like, yeah, I'll take the meat, you bet. And if my wife doesn't want to eat it, I'll eat it. My kids will eat it. My friends will eat it. No, no big deal. I have but, fed uh, bear to a lot of people oh, it's who, good. who really like bears. And the oh, universal answer is, I feel really bad that I'm eating this guy. Yeah. But I am going to go for seconds. Yeah, it's really good. I've had it several times. And uh, that said, I think if I gave my wife bear and she thought it was venison and she found out after the fact it was bear, this would probably be my last podcast. You would not be able to find me. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. When I think about um, bear, however, from like a like a general management perspective, it felt to me in listening to the conversations over the last several years, it, there there was an, this attempt, and I because I think that's really what they were doing, but this the attempt to layer in social values into hunting and fishing. And I, I actually do believe that there is a place for that. Whether It's not whether you can, it's whether you should. I think that's part of the question. You know, like going back to the Harkland as the example, the bird itself is not in danger of being extinct. There's lots of harlequins up in British Columbia, Alaska. Now, they exist. It was just getting the population in the state was starting to get uh, depressed. And, yeah. Yeah. So we, that's why we close it. But it's not like they were going extinct. But we should still close it. Um, when you look at, at bear, the bear population is quite high. But I think the, the question that some several of the commissioners were asking is whether we should be hunting them in the spring. Is it right? Is it the ethical thing to do? Now, I believe that it is ethical. And I think that the reason, the way to go about articulating the ethical elements of bear hunting period, let alone hunting them in the spring, is to try to separate out a lot of our emotional reactions to people saying, well, I don't understand why you're hunting them at all. Like they're just cute, cuddly little animals. I'm like, well, yeah, okay. It's true that people may have seen too much Disney as a kid and they think everything is, is, you know, Bambi. As you said earlier, you know, nature can be beautiful and cruel at the same time. And if you ever seen what you know, another animal can do to another animal, it's like, well, it's clearly can be cruel just as we can be cruel. So I think there's, there's conversation to be had around the ethics of hunting and what is it we're really doing? Because I, I believe that the people that were saying things like, oh, the bears are sluggish in the spring and they're just coming out of hibernation and, you know, it's, they're they're lactating mothers you know the the, the sows with cubs and everything well um okay let's talk about how we can manage this without say harvesting cubs you know for example one of the things that struck me is like well you know if we did hunting over bait 
you'd actually be able to tell what, whether that's a sow or not pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, whether it would have cubs. And, you know, that's as a kid, you know, growing up in Oregon, that was something that was, you know, prohibited when I was very young, you know, not just hunting with hounds, but also hunting over bait. I was like, yep. well, it kind of makes sense if you're able to hunt over bait to be able to see what it is before you're actually pulling a trigger or sending that arrow through the air. So we can have those conversations, but at the same time, we need to articulate that there is this interest in hunting, not just simply for the bloodlust, but because it is providing food for our families and it's providing us with recreational opportunities, you know, just getting out and being in the woods. It's creating economic opportunities for, you know, small communities that are selling, you know, food and, and drinks, and providing lodging, ammunition, whatever you want to call it, gas. And those things don't happen unless uh, we're creating the opportunity. So. We can have the conversation about the ethics, but I think it's also just fine to talk about the ethics in combination with all these other values that come along with hunting. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I know a lot of the people who are going to listen to this show are going to very much know the statistics on the the lactating cubs thing. That was actually a very small, 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 small fraction of harvests. And I think the bigger issue than that one, because that was mostly just an emotional argument to make people Mm -hmm. get angry about it, which, you know, this part of politics, figuring out what's going to trigger something, somebody to do something, whether it's totally accurate or not, unfortunately. Seeing how many people regard bear hunting as a trophy hunt was very bothersome to me. Yeah, because it was this idea that we don't eat the meat and that there was no there was never any pushback from the commission on that very much bothered me because legally we have to retain it. We have to take that meat home. The the I would love to see cougar added to that statute as well as far as well wanton waste, because if yeah, if I harvest a cougar ever, which I'm going to try to this year. I've ran into so many Same. cats prior to season. Um, mm. It's definitely getting eaten, you know. There's, oh, yeah. There's no Same. way I would waste that. Same. But going into kind of switching gears a little bit into from the PR piece of it to how we engage in the fight, because I feel like you are in a unique position to kind of help guide us along a little bit. Because we're constantly trying to get people to commission meetings, get -hmm. people to write in, get people to put stuff in the comments, maybe even write the governor's office. But what other actions could an organized group of hunters take to try and see effective change with the commission? For one thing, we got to show up during the legislative session. Got to be there. Um, I don't know how effective it is to to show up in our camo and our orange all the time. I think sometimes that's good because it, it can be impressive when you see you know a bunch of guys and gals out there, a bunch of outdoors people just wearing their their camo, wearing their their blaze orange, and being like, "Hey, we're we're here, we're present during this legislative session." But then during session as well, not besides just like a rally on, on the Capitol steps. Set up meeting with your your legislator, 
and not even just during session. You can meet with them in the interim, which is interim means between sessions, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I've talked to my legislators, which is funny because, you know, I used to work in the legislature. So it's like, well, I used to be in the halls with some of you folks and now I'm reaching out to you to have conversations. And it's kind of funny, but I, I feel like I have to. And I didn't used to do that. But in the last couple of years, I started doing that because I'm like, we're we're fighting this this fight right now around access and around opportunity. I need to be present, not just take for granted that, you know, some friend of mine who happens to be a state rep is going to listen to me. Like, if they don't know how I feel, how are they going to vote? Like, how are they going to take that into account? They have to hear from me. And so I started doing that. And I feel very grateful for my legislators in, in my district, in the 27th district in Tacoma. I feel like they at least listen to me. They give me the time, which is great. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to necessarily vote your way. They may not, yeah. but they need to hear from yeah. you. And if they keep hearing from you, they're going to remember that. And it's all of a sudden there's some big vote that comes up and they're going to remember when they talk with Ryan about turkey hunting season. They're going to remember when they talk to Jordan about protecting some, you know, critical habitat for uh, waterfowl. So there's more access for waterfowl hunting. They're going to remember those things. So, and I think it's important too, as we think about our legislators, you know, I happen to be, um, say, as you noted in the, in the op-ed, you know, I'm a progressive uh, voter. I, I typically support the, the legislation that the majorities are passing in Olympia, but I'm certainly not taking for granted that they're just going to vote my way especially when it comes to hunting and fishing opportunities, because we, we've seen what the commission's doing and well, who appointed the commission? Well, the Democratic majority did. So it's important that we engage with those folks and kind of ignore the party aspect. You know, we can be, I can go talk to um, any member of say the House Ag and Natural Resources Committee. And I don't care if they're a Democrat or a Republican, I'm going to engage with them. And I'm going to give them the same talking points. Because I, I want them to understand that my, me as a hunter, I need certain outcomes. And it doesn't matter if, what my, how I vote, they're there to represent everyone in the state. So if you are in Central Washington, Southeast, Southwest, North Puget Sound, Seattle area, and you're interested in these issues, you should go meet with your legislator and try and do, do so not just during session, but also during the interim and talk to them about what you're interested in. Yeah. Admittedly, that poses a bit of a challenge for us on the east side too. you know, that that access participate remotely. Yeah, they, they started exactly. doing that, which is Thank blows my mind. It's right? so weird. Yeah. Like, because that was not a thing when I was a staff person. It's like, no, no, no. You got to come to Olympia. You don't anymore. It's really pretty fascinating. And you'd be amazed at the effectiveness of a letter writing campaign. As hmm. staff, it was like you got 10 letters on this issue. I mean, you tell the legislator you're working for, you got 10 letters on this issue. And they're like, oh, really? Just 10. Huh. I'm not talking about hundreds. 10. That's a big number. Because you know, it's not funny everyone to is hear that. Up the phone. It's funny to yeah. hear that because I was I was having a chat with somebody the other day and I said to that person that the three issues that were ha that were combating in the hunting sphere when it comes to getting people involved is apathy hubris and hopelessness you know yeah. you have the people who just 
don't care, don't pay attention, that you're trying to get to care and pay attention and maybe do something. You have the people who think that it's untouchable, which, it, yeah. I mean, at this point, I would hope that it's been demonstrated that it is touchable and ev every piece of hunting is touchable. I don't care if mm -hmm. you're a whitetail hunter, yep. uh, elk hunter, whatever. It's this fight's coming to your hunt sooner mm -hmm. or later. And then, you know, that last one of hopelessness is probably one of the hardest ones to combat. And yeah. I know I've fallen prey to it where I feel like I don't have a voice at all. And yeah. I know for me, when that changed is I sent an email off to the commission and Jim Anderson called me back. Commissioner Anderson. Jim's the man. Yeah. And he took the time. He took like an hour and a half to explain the process and try and help mm -hmm. me understand how to better engage. And yeah. it made me realize that I can reach these people, even if I'm just some guy. And I think that everybody who listens to the show and cares about hunting needs to understand that as a takeaway, that they can yeah. have an impact, even, even yeah. to the people who they think are never going to listen to them that are diametrically opposed to almost all mm -hmm. of their viewpoints, you can still have an impact on them too. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. Um, especially if you're a constituent, if you live in that district, that legislator does not care if you are a Democrat or Republican, they want it. You come to talk to them and you come to them with some idea, um, you know, policy issue, budget request, whatever it may be, and you come to them respectfully and say laying out your, your position, they're going to take that in and they are going to listen. It's amazing. They, they really do. Now, if you come at them with, you know, um, you're just trying to take away my rights and you're pounding on the table, they're going to be like, yeah, all right, I'm done. Like they're not, they're, they're just going to, it's going to turn off. Right. And it doesn't matter. Basic human nature, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you just come to say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm Jordan Rash. I'm, I'm, I'm a hunter. I'm an outdoorsman. Um, you know, I want to talk to you about this bill, which is looking like it's going to stack the Fish and Wildlife Commission as an example, not to generate more fear, uh, but it stack the Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, with two more folks in their permanent positions that benefit, you know, folks that live in, in Wallingford or something like that in Seattle. But okay. It, let me tell me more about it, Jordan. And then if I can just lay out why that's, it's not fair, it's not just. We're losing opportunities for outdoorsmen and you're providing all these benefits to the community and you just lay it out very matter of fact that way. They are going to listen. Does not mean they're going to vote in your direction, but they will listen. That's been my experience being on that side of things and taking things. Mm -hmm. So it's all about how you present it and being persistent, being present. I think also just demonstrating that you can be that voice of reason so that you can be asked questions um, yes because i know you mentioned some things offline i've had a similar experience where because i was able to articulate what i was talking about clearly before mm -hmm. i was asked questions about well what do you think about this and yeah. the fact is when it comes to hunting we are the the subject matter experts because we're the right. ones doing it so right. policymakers don't always have all of the facts at their disposal so they we don't. could either we could either let the anti-hunting side be the one who supplies those facts quote mm -hmm. air quotes 
or we yep. can be the ones who supply those facts. And oh, by 100%. engaging early on, I think we put ourselves in our uh, position to do that. Yeah, hundred percent. I had a legislator just this last calendar year, right before session, uh, we were talking about bear hunting, and but it was within the context of uh, the Fish and Wildlife Commission, and she said, "Well, um, my understanding is that uh, the timber companies actually oppose spring bear because of you know the impacts to their tree farm." And I said, "No, I think you got it the inverse. They they support it because of the impacts." And she's like, read her notes. She's like. And I explained why, and I explained it's actually the girdling of the trees. They're just trying to get it sap. And she's like, oh, I'll have to go look at that. And, you know, she went and found out, went back to staff and got clarification. Because sometimes they're, not only does, does the legislator not know, because they can't know everything. They really can't. And that's that's just, again, like I said, human nature, it's not possible. The staff don't know everything either. And it's also not possible for them. So, when it, you know, it, rather than, say, getting angry, at that legislator for being uh, misinformed, you just no, 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 it's actually this, and this is why. And if you just come off very matter of fact and provide, you know, truth rather than your own, uh, you know, hyperbole, your 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 opinion, you're you're going to come off, like you said, uh, as, as a subject matter expert, someone that you can be counted on to provide them with background if they need it. I I love that idea, and. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know that both you and I are absolutely brain fried. So I do believe that's probably an <laughs> excellent note to end on unless you have some bit of pithy advice for the hunting community out there. I don't know if it's pithy, but I guess I would put a, a fine point on it. You know, when it comes to our engagement as hunters and, and anglers uh, with our legislators, party politics does not matter. You know, it, we have to engage with Republicans and Democrats, independents if there are any left. Uh, because <laughs> those, and there's, there's your pithy moment. Because those are the folks making the decisions. And, you know, I've prided myself over my career, uh, both internal, you know, inside the legislature, as well as externally when I was doing work external to the legislature, but still involved in legislative and congressional politics, that I've ignored the party label, as soon as session starts, it does not matter. And I'm willing to work with anyone that's willing to work with me. And I think as so long as I approach things in that way, and I think so long as we approach things in that way, we're going to get a lot more done. Because the reality is, the vast majority of people in Washington state, and I suspect across the country, I haven't looked at the data for that, but in Washington state, it's what, 68 or 70% of Washingtonians support hunting, ethical hunting. And so the numbers are really on our side. We just have to be present to articulate what it is we're trying to accomplish and to demonstrate that the public supports what, what it is we do. I love it. Thanks again, Jordan, for coming on the show. I do really appreciate your time. You bet, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Sam. If you want to get involved in this fight, there's plenty of places that you can donate your time, energy, and finances to. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, the Inland Northwest Wildlife Council, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the Washington State Conservation Coalition. Those are all things that you should look into. And after you've done that and you still want to support this show, go ahead and go to ko-fi.com. That's K-O-F-I 
patreon.com backslash hunter farmer artisan and you can leave me a tip that just helps me pay for software licenses and equipment so i can bring you this information